Emma came up to me and said, Mr. Mitch, I have a sermon request. I love hearing that. When you have children coming up and, and they are wanting certain sermons and they have something in their mind to request it, well, of course, that just goes priority right there. <laughs> and so I thought with what her request was, was very appropriate for our lives. You know, in the book of Daniel, what you have is this book that has a lot of lessons, if you will, dealing with our trust in the Lord. I'm not sure if you picked up on that, because most times we think of just stories like Daniel in the lion's den, and we, we think of, I don't know about you, I went ahead and did a Google search, and those pictures of the lions look pretty much like kittens to me. Hard to get lessons on trust when you have a kitten-like lion smiling, kind of nudging up against Daniel like all is well. But I guess that's because it's children's stories and we have to make it more quote-unquote suitable or politically correct for our children. But when we're talking about trusting our God, these are life-and-death situations that we're talking about because of their conviction in who God is. That He is the one who gives us faithful promises. And we believe as a result. Well, when we look at these things with regard to Scriptures, we know all these things. We can read Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We've heard that passage many times. We read it often. Or Proverbs 16, and verse 20. He who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Or Proverbs 28, verse 25, He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. Or how about this one? Proverbs 29, verse 25, which says, The fear of man brings us near, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So when I ask you, brethren, do you believe in these passages of Scripture? It's easy to say yes when we look at passages easy to say yes and nod our heads when we read the scriptures about other people and what they did. But you know, until you actually soak in the ramifications to these passages, they're nothing but passages. If you're never challenged about your true faith in God, then trust is not much of an issue. But when you're faced with situations because of your convictions in service to the Lord, now what? Are these real? You see, when we look at life's situations, let's say just dealing with family. Will my spouse stop loving me or become difficult to live with because of my conviction in Christ? I've had moms and dads over the 20 years I've been in the Lord who've said something similar to this. Or how about... Will my children accept my parenting decisions in service to Christ? I want to raise my children in the way of the Lord, but you know, it's causing strife in my family because they don't agree with me. What do I do in this situation? I've heard many parents. I have to deal with this. Will my parents disown me because of my beliefs in service to the Lord? I've had many children have to deal with this. I was never raised up in a family that 
that knew the Lord as far as living their lives for the Lord. I was never raised up on the teachings of God's Word. But I could just imagine what it's like when I am a Christian and I'm living in the confines of my mom and my dad and their direction is so different than the way of the Lord. Well, my parents disown me because I love my mom and I love my dad. Or how about in the workplace? Will mentioning the Lord cause me to be blackballed among my coworkers, my boss? Did you hear this past week in the state of California where a teacher was docking 25% off a student's grade for simply saying, bless you? I mean, you know, will I be blackballed for just mentioning the Lord? Will I be ostracized because of my Christian convictions that are different from other co-workers? Well, you're just a religious fanatic. You know, I've got all my friends. They go to all these churches, and that's no big deal. Why do you have to be so different? Well, how about, will I get fired for taking a stand because of my belief in Jesus Christ? And so these are trust issues. Whether in the family, the workplace. How about lesser things? Not that they're less to us, but lesser in regard of salvation. You know, it just may be the issues of life. How about this? Will I ever find someone to marry because of my convictions? You know, will there be someone else that holds the convictions that I have because I love the Lord so much? And I don't know guys, I don't know gals that have these kinds of convictions. And will I ever find someone? How will we make it this month paying these bills because inflation continues? We're hitting a double-dip recession is what I'm told. And some are saying, well, were we ever out of it? Man, we're faced with ever-increasing prices. How are we going to make this month's bills? Will God provide if we begin having a family now? I hear this over 20 years. I remember my dad told me when, when we first started having children, he said, son, you'll never have enough money. All right. <laughs> I guess that solves it. <laughs> and he's right. You'll just never have it. I mean, when you think of the cost of education and you, you look at the, the amount of money it takes just to, to have clothing and necessities of life, it's a very scary thing. And so the question is, well, will God provide if we start a family now? Or do we lean on our own understanding and do things this way or that way? I mean, that's a difficult thing. That's a trust issue that everyone goes through at some point. How can I care for my aged parents in their physical and mental condition? I mean, if we were to bring them into our home, which is what we really want to do, but I don't know if I have the quote-unquote professional ability or knowledge or the strength or whatever, how do we, how do we make this work? trust issue what happens in my relationship with my family members or my co-workers if i bring this sin out before you you know what's going to happen all these issues that go on in life are part of our relationship with god how real is god to me in my walk with the lord how really is in is he in my life and i believe then when we look at the Scriptures and compare whether the Scriptures or other things that go on, this is what we need to understand. And the, the question is, 
How is it that as Christians we realize the need to trust in God, we read His Word and, and see the benefits of trusting in Him, we see those who have trusted in Him, but I have difficulty nonetheless in my life. I have difficulty practicing trust right now. I think this is pretty legitimate. I think it's easy to talk about trust when I don't have the issues right now. But when I'm faced with something in my life that is hard, where's my trust in God? To provide. To be there. And how will He do it when I don't see any logical light at the end of the tunnel? How can I practice this trust? And that's what we're looking at. And we're going to look at some examples in, in the book of Daniel. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, although this was used of those who were wandering in the wilderness, you get the point. I believe all these scriptures that we have now in Old and New Testaments for us are examples today. Of how we can trust in a faithful God. A God who I believe is near us if we open our eyes. The eyes of faith, that is. And so, we're going to look at the book of Daniel. We're going to see the virtue of trusting in the Lord in various situations. We looked at one just now as, as Dan was reading for us out of Daniel chapter 3. We're going to start with chapter 1 and go through these first six chapters in Daniel. And I want you to see Daniel, this young man. Some say he was like a boy. Young man, if you're 13 years old or older, you're considered a, an adult, if not a young one. Maybe a youthful man, maybe not qualified for being in, in the army and, and what have you for the military, that is, in, in the days of Israel. But they were treated like young men. And however young he was, some say he might have been about 14 years old. I don't know. I'd venture to say he was young enough, and I'll tell you the reason why when we get on to the latter part of these examples. But let's start off with this fact. And if we learn this one thing, that God is so real to me, that is, He's near me, He's close to me, I cannot help but trust in Him. Kind of like what we're looking at this morning in Mark chapter 4 in our auditorium class. That if I... I realize He is always here next to me and protecting me and wanting the best for me, then I fear not. My faith, my trust is in Him. And so these are the things that we're going to look at. First of all, I want you to note as we go to the um, book of Daniel, we'll start there, the last part. Let me catch up with you all. Then I want you to, to note what life was like. First of all, imagine this. Here is Daniel, growing up as a young boy, learning everything about God. I could just imagine him learning about the book of Deuteronomy and all that, that God had dealt with the history of Israel from the time they were in Egypt, being brought into the wilderness, being there for 40 years, how God provided for them, and through all the trials, whether they had enemies or food issues, that God always cared. And that He brought them just as He promised, that I can remember in Genesis chapter 12, all that God had done 
for Abraham and fulfilled it. I know that I have a God who loves me, who I can trust in. So he learns all about God, his relationship with Israel, his faithful promises, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and so on and so forth. And all who clung to him. That's the the God Daniel would learn of. So now, when we look at his life and see that you fast forward to the time he's about, let's say, 14 years old, and Nebuchadnezzar brings his armies into Judah and surrounds Jerusalem and takes everyone captive. And they go into what we call Babylonian captivity. Here you are, you're 14 years old, and everything that you've ever known is turned upside down. No longer do you go to the temple. Now you're going off to some foreign land and are servants to a foreign king with foreign laws. You're intermingled with all these foreigners among you. And here you are, you're trying to worship your God, let alone serve Him on a daily basis. Do you suppose that Daniel could have had trust issues? Brethren, you better believe it. But because I believe Daniel had a genuine relationship with God, he really believed Him. It was not a matter of, man, I don't know, does God really exist now? I mean, too late. He's been firmly grounded and entrenched at such a young age. Many adults today have difficulty believing, does God really exist? Because if He does, this would not have happened to me. This would not have happened to my family. That's not what we see in Daniel. When we pick up in the very first of Daniel chapter 1, we see a young man convicted of the Lord. I want to read in, in the third year, chapter 1, verse 1, of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure, uh, the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. I want to stop right there. According to history... Chaldeans typically during this era would start or begin teaching at about age 14. You know, today we start, what, age 3 or 4 with the preschool and on up. Their teaching was very, very intense kind of teaching. I mean, you, you learn different languages. You learn uh, different types of sciences and what have you. A lot of teaching mainly about their gods. And being wise in pleasing their God. Well, the Jews started even earlier. By the time they were 14 years old, there's a lot of teaching that would have gone on. They would go back to the law, so as soon as their child was able to understand, their parents would raise them up. 
from morning to night, teaching their children everything that they would be faithful to Jehovah, who was faithful to them. Well, among those who stood out of the Jews were Daniel and his friends. It says in verse 5 that the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So that's the three-year plan, if you will. Very intense training. Much more than even many of our college courses, if, if, if we might think of it from that standpoint. Very intense type of learning going on. Also that they would serve the king. Now, in verse 6, it says, Among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And going on, it says, To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, or Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Defile himself? Isn't it just food? Meat is meat, right? Not when you're a Jew living under the law of Moses. There were meats that were clean and meats that were unclean. There were things that they would drink and things that they would not drink. And whatever this king's delicacies were, if he were to partake of them, it would have violated the commandments that came from the Lord. And instead of keeping his mouth quiet, saying, well, you know, we, we live in different times now. We live under different circumstances. We live in a foreign land. And you know what? Is God even with us? Because the temple has been destroyed. The city of Jerusalem destroyed. I don't even know if God exists. That's not the belief of Daniel. The God that he serves, he has known for hundreds of years of history. That's the God that he believes in. That's the God who was real and close to him. And as a result, he had this conviction that he purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. He was going to keep the law. I don't know how old he was. He's at least 14. I believe that's pretty close to the age that he would be. And this is the kind of conviction that he has. Teenagers, do you have the kind of conviction Daniel showed at age 14? Where he would be able to stand up to a king who has just taken your country taken all your people, all your noblemen, and brought them into a foreign land, captive. He behaved as a man of God who trusted in the Almighty. That says something about his belief in a faithful God. I want you to look even further. That Daniel and those with Daniel, his friends, were convicted of God's faithfulness, which caused them to act in like fashion, to be faithful to the one who is going to keep them even in this place of captivity. Do you suppose that if Daniel knew God's word, he could go back to the, the book of Deuteronomy and read in his mind's eye, if you will, if he didn't have it with him, or the ability to have it read to him? Deuteronomy 29, 
that if you are not faithful to me, I will bring all these things upon you and I will actually send you out into captivity. God is faithful. He kept his word. We've not been faithful to him. And now this is the result of our sins. This is a God who has been faithful in every which way in keeping his promises. And when we're not living up to his desire, eventually his long suffering ends and he will promise that we're going to go into captivity. And he's done just that. They're convicted about this faithful God. And thus they were able to to stand up against him. So with that in mind, here's this trust. Go on into chapter 2. In chapter 2, here's Nebuchadnezzar. He has this dream, right? And with this dream, he wants all his wise men to come before and interpret the dream. And they're saying, well, king, if you just tell us the dream, we'll interpret it for you. Ha ha. No. I want you to tell me the dream. That way I know that when you interpret it, you'll interpret it right. Uh, (laughs) No one can do that. Nobody can do that. So the king is going to kill all the wise men. And when that decree comes to Daniel, he realizes he, along with the others, are going to all die because no one's able to interpret the king's dreams. And so as a result, he says, you know what? God can. And he prays to God. And God shows him the dream and he's able to go to Nebuchadnezzar and interpret the dream because God revealed it to him. Well, when you read the rest of the story, we see what Daniel's doing. He's preserving life because he trusts in a God who's going to care for not only him, for Daniel, but for his people. We see trust in that chapter. How about chapter 3? Daniel's interpretation was, King, you're going to have this image, right? Of course, the head is of gold, and that's you, and that's your kingdom. It's a glorious kingdom. God gave you this kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. And then you're going to have all these kingdoms coming after you that are lesser, yet they're going to overtake you. Until you get this one indestructible king. Or kingdom, I should say. And so no sooner than you have this dream interpreted, what do you see in the third chapter? The king himself, Nebuchadnezzar, sets up an image. Could it be the image right here? Could it be a a representation of this dream that he had had? I don't know, but I'd venture to say that by virtue of this reading, that's a possibility, if not even a probability. And he makes it so that every person bows down to that image. And here's Daniel. There's no way I'm going to do this. His friends say, I am not going to obey. In fact, Daniel is placed to such high authority, king doesn't do anything to him. But what about his friends who have been promoted? They're not in the position that Daniel is in. And when you read verse 8 following in chapter 3, it says, at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. What were the Jews doing? Or let me rephrase it. What were they not doing? They weren't bowing down to this image. Because God said, remember in in those commandments that issued all the law? You shall have no other gods before me. They would not bow down to this image. Instead, they would be praying to their own God. So they spoke to the king in verse 9. 
and said, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Do you think that these Jews, Daniel and his friends, knew the decree? It's one thing for you to go in and not have this and go, well, I didn't know the law. I didn't know the teaching. It's another where the law is being made, but you already have your conviction saying, I cannot bow down to men. I must be faithful to a God who has always been true to me. I have no other relationship with my God other than to trust in Him. These for lack of a better term, boys or young men were willing to go to their death. They're willing to go and die because they believed in Jehovah and would not bow down to some dumb idol. Can't speak. Man crafted it. We're not going to bow down to it. For us to listen to the story... I think it's easy to be disconnected because we're so far removed from anything likened unto dying for believing in Jesus as the Christ today. I believe if we lived in the Middle East, whether it's Yemen, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, maybe we have a connection now to say I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm going to be killed for it. We might be able to listen to the, the story of Daniel and go, what amazing faith. For us, it's like, yeah, there's amazing faith, but it's words. It doesn't tug at our heartstring to say what kind of an amazing faith that they would trust in God so as to really give up their lives. Do you know why they were able to do that, brethren? They so believed in God. And I believe they believed in the resurrection. They were not losing they were gaining life. And so they're willing to go to the fiery furnace, if you will. And so when we read um, verses 19 following, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, when he had heard about these three men who did not bow down to that image, was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more then it was usually heated. How dare you challenge my authority? Listen. I get upset with my children, and if they challenge my authority, somehow my chest gets bigger. Can you imagine a king saying, you're challenging my authority? He was so upset with them. He commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, their other garments, and were cast in the midst of the fiery furnace. You've got a lot of flammable stuff there. And it's not any fire. It's seven times hotter. Now, I'm not the scientific kind of a guy that says a fire is typically X, um, X degrees Fahrenheit and then multiplied by seven. That's just not me. 
It's hot, and now multiply hot by seven. That's hot. Therefore, verse 22, because of the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men, those noble men of valor, who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's so hot that the men taking them into the furnace, they are burned up. They die. So it's hot. And by all likelihood, these three men should have died. These Jews should have died. If these other men have been killed by these flames, they likewise. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then the king, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast these three men bound in the midst of the fire? They said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth like the Son of God. I don't know what that would have been like, but astonished. So astonishing was this scene that King Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm undone. There is one God above all other gods, and His name is Jehovah. And I'm making a decree now that the men that these um, excuse me, the God that these three men have served, everyone will worship him from now on. King Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled, realized his sin, recognized there is an almighty God, and God's name is magnified because these three men were willing to put their trust in God and manifest that trust before these unbelievers. An amazing testimony. These young men doing this. What about us, brethren? What kind of hard things that Joel mentioned this morning would we be willing to do to show our trust in God? That's what we're looking at. So here's Daniel. Does not defile himself with food or drink. Chapter 1. He provides Nebuchadnezzar with his, with his interpretation through God, naturally. Chapter 3. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusting God to deliver them. And if not... No big deal, because we'll be with him. I mean, to make light of life, knowing that eternal life is so much more grand. There is no comparison that we put our trust in him rather than in Nebuchadnezzar's degree. But now that leads us to this next one. You see, when you go through chapter 4 and and read through it, we can see Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We see um, Daniel explaining that dream to him. Well... Later on, Nebuchadnezzar moves on in life. Belshazzar, his son, becomes king. And his son doesn't have the same humility as his father had grown to have. And learned on multiple occasions, I would add. So Belshazzar has this writing on a wall. And like his father asks for the wise people to go ahead and say, what does this mean? And they are not able to answer that question, but they said, you know what? We remember Daniel. Remember that he was able to interpret dreams. He can tell you what this writing means. And, of course, Daniel says, well, yeah, my God can 
tell you what this is. It's only because of God I can tell you what this writing means. And he says, here's what's going to happen. And he goes through the writing and basically says, you know, you don't have humility like your father. And you're going to die as a result of this. Daniel boldly stands before this almighty, quote-unquote almighty, king. Because he believes in the almighty God. The boldness that Daniel had to go toe-to-toe with a king that could easily say, you're done for, by virtue of looking at me the wrong way, puts his trust in God. But now we come to the sixth chapter, and I believe the fifth chapter would lead to this as well. But by the time you get into the sixth chapter, I believe Daniel's an old man. Why don't you look at the last verse of chapter 5 and moving into chapter 6. And this is the reason why I believe it was about 14 or so when he first went into captivity. In the last part of chapter 5, we're told, verse 30, that that night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Daniel goes quickly from his relationship been explained with Belshazzar to now the kingdom of Babylon having fallen. Well, what we know from scriptures, from reading Jeremiah and other passages, that the captivity period for the Jews were going to be 70 years. From the time they go into captivity to the time the people of Israel would have been released and go back to the homeland would be 70 years of captivity. So here is Darius the Mede. With Cyrus, king of Persia. They overcome. History tells us, and there's great detail in history. That the Babylonians were feasting, right? And while they were having this drunken feast. The waters that would go under the the city. That was so well protected. 25 foot wide walls. That they would take the water that was being fed by spring into the city. And they were having it water diverted so that the water going into the city or underneath the walls of the city would get lower and lower till finally they could wade under the city, come in while this drunken feast was going on, and take the king and slay him. And just like that, Babylon, mighty Babylon is falling. You can read Jeremiah. You can read Isaiah. They prophesied this was going to happen to Babylon, the greatest kingdom on earth. Do you suppose Daniel at this old age, at least in his 80s, would have said, I remember the prophets speaking of what would happen to Babylon, and now I've witnessed it with my own eyes. But we can read in chapter 6 of Darius. It says it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, To be over the whole kingdom. And over these three commissioners. Or governors. Of whom Daniel was one. So here is Daniel. One of three governors. Maybe over 40 of of the satraps. Maybe each governor was over 40 of them. I don't know. But he's have such a high position of authority. These people didn't like this Jew. It says here in 
in the last part that Daniel was one of them, these governors, that they might give account, that these satraps would give account to them, to Daniel and the other two, so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because of an excellent spirit that was in him and, was, and the king gave thought to settling or setting him over the whole realm. Daniel is being so wise in his ways and trusting in God. God is providing salvation and safety for his Jews that they would be able to go back into the homeland. But in the meantime, by virtue of this trust, here's one more challenge, one more trial, one more test. Do you trust in me? Do you really believe that I am who you say I am? Long story short is they try and get Daniel to be convicted of some fraud, but they can't find anything in him. So they have to look at the laws of the land, religiously speaking, and go, that's how we can get Daniel. So now in verse 8, they tell the king, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. And that law was that if anyone... would dare go out and serve some other king other than this king. Well, in fact, just read verse 7. The the governors of the kingdom, administrators, uh, satraps, counselors, advisors, consulted together to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god of man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. And of course, which God did the Jews believe in? But Jehovah. So, Daniel, knowing this, knowing that this decree had been signed, still goes out and prayed. Three times a day, we're told in verse 10. Gives thanks to God, as was his custom since early days. Since he was a young man. Brethren, These are one, two, three, four, five illustrations in the book of Daniel, the first six chapters. Time and again, we see illustrations of trusting in God, where their lives are at stake. Going to a king and interpreting a dream and you don't get it right, you're gone. Writing on the wall, just face to face with the king, being thrown into a furnace, now being thrown into a a den of lions, that I'm telling you, I don't care if they look like kittens. I wouldn't go into a den of lions. Especially if they've not been fed for more than one minute. Telling you, I cannot imagine how ferocious the sight was. It's definitely not fit for today's children coloring books. This is real life. And he was willing to go into that den. You know, the king loved Daniel. And when he had made this decree, I think he was not understanding the ramifications to what he was saying. Could never have imagined it would have affected the friendship that he had had with Daniel. So that when he is faced with what's going on with Daniel, he's sad. He's sad that he signed the decree. He's upset with his own people who tried to basically trick him. Now, reading in verse 18, 
It says the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No musicians were brought before him. Also, sleep went from him. Do you think that he's distraught over what he has done? This Daniel's a wise man. He's ready to make him king over all. Except for him. Then the king arose very early in the morning, went in haste to the den of lions, and when he came to the den, he cried out with lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke and said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? The God that you trust. The very God that he might have told Darius about. Then Daniel said, O king, live forever. I imagine those words were just sweet music to the king's heart. To hear Daniel respond being in this den. He goes on to say in verse 22, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. And the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No injury whatsoever was found on him because he believed, he trusted in his God. Brethren, quickly. Here's the lesson for us to grow in our trust in God. We have got to believe that our God really exists. And not just that He does and we come to church and we do and we kind of hope that maybe we get to go to heaven. That we do believe in, the, in Jesus. He is the Christ. But it's not just lip service. We genuinely believe it. We so believe it that we move because of this belief. That bills are nothing to us. God's going to provide. Now, that doesn't mean I just go squander everything. I'm, I'm living faithfully. But God is always going to provide. When I look at this, my trust in the Lord grows as the years pass on. Because I've seen what God has done for, for me personally. And I've shared some of this with, with some of you on one-on-one situations. I've seen my God provide for my sister who was living out of garbage cans. I've seen my God provide for Julie and myself when we had zero dollars and zero cents in the bank account. Mid-America coming back to Georgia. How do you make it home? We need gas money. Are we going to eat today? We don't have to eat today. You know, people can go days without eating. Zero in the account. And here's God providing. One day when I got arrested, oh yes, got arrested, <laughs> as a Christian preaching the gospel in Georgia, not for preaching the gospel in Georgia, but because I didn't have insurance, I have a $1,000 Fine, impounding, and when you get bailed out of jail, something. I don't have a thousand dollars. I didn't have a hundred dollars. And two days before the trial, I get a check. Guess what for? A thousand dollars from someone I think I maybe have met once in my life. And then there's a time Julie and I come into Nashville, Tennessee on a stormy, wintry night after Thanksgiving is over. And we have $40 we set aside for parking. Guess what parking costs after one week? Not $40, but $42. We were not let out of the parking lot. 
Julie says, Grandma Chi gave the girls some Christmas money. And there was the money. They got us through. Time and time. There's so many illustrations this way. Many of which I look back and I see my God has always provided for us. Always. I've never gone in such a manner that most people in the world experience on a daily basis. How awesome is God? And when I read His Word, I read all these stories time and time again from Genesis chapter 2. This is the fruit you eat. This is the fruit you don't eat. You eat of this fruit, you will die. Guess what happened when they partook of the fruit? They were separated from God, taken out of that garden. And the rest of the story of life unfolds for us. And all throughout Scripture and history, God has proven Himself faithful even to the raising up of His Son, so that hundreds saw Him raised from the dead, and hundreds were willing to go to their grave proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. And if God can provide the ultimate reality of truth in that we have a Savior, then, brethren, the rest of this is nothing for us. But becomes something when we've set our eyes off of the Lord, when we walk away from Him, we begin to doubt His existence. We begin to doubt His closeness to us. Even when His Word tells us otherwise. Then we fail to draw near to our God. And thus, we show our unbelief. Conversely, though, genuine belief moves us to act in accordance with that faith and with that trust. That's what Daniel did. And so we go to a passage like Matthew chapter 6. When you read verses 25 to 34, when he says, you know... God provided for the birds of the air, for the grass of the field. How much more of value are you than these things? He said, you seek God first. Seek His kingdom. All these things shall be added to you. That's what he says. We have no control over Things that happen against us in life. I mean, you can only have control over your actions, right? The fact that you have this free will. That's all you have control over. You cannot worry that something has happened to you. That the people at work believe differently than you. That your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter, or your co-workers, your neighbors, even brethren. that believe, act, behave differently than you, that you think is not according to Scripture, you have no control over those things. You have only control over what you do. And so the passage then is only Scripture if you don't believe. It's only this word that I can read about, but I really am not convicted in. Conversely, the very Word of God that tells me God is able to make me stand, that's His promise. That He gives me His Spirit when I come into the kingdom. When He adds me into His kingdom. That I can walk worthy of His calling because He's able to make me in such a manner. That I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's a scripture that gives me hope so that when I'm faced with trials and tribulations, it's no big deal. You know that getting a house today is, is a lot more difficult than it was, right, five years ago? It's no big deal. You get a house or you rent one. What is that? You have a place that has a roof over your head. You're not having cold come in. You're not having wet. 
or the heat. And we got it made, brethren. Life is very comfortable and easy here. We're talking about much more important things with regard to our trusting in the Lord. These are the things, brethren, that help us as a body of believers to walk worthy of the calling and let the whole world know who we are. That's what we need in our lives. We know that God has revealed himself as faithful and he has ever done in everything he's ever done for us has always proven faithful. And if that is true from reading Scripture and we internalize that and we believe it from the bottom of our heart that He really is real to us, we'll trust Him. So the question, brethren, is how real is God to you? Because if He genuinely is real to you, the trust issue is taken away. And you fully believe and trust in Him to provide in no matter what your circumstance. And you know the circumstance may ultimately be you lose your life here on this, in this earth. So what is that but gain to you, right? Gain. Right, Bill? <laughs> it's gain. Brethren, we've got to have a genuine trust in the Lord. It's not about just coming to church and talking a good game. But living this way, that the world may glorify God, who they see in you and saying, I, I need to turn to this God that they believe in. This is an amazing God. That's the God you trust in.